Amen. Thank you, Trio. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll stand together, and I mentioned we're going to look at Lot. We're going to hold off on Lot, and um, we'll look at him here and um, coming ahead sometime. 2 Timothy chapter 4, notice in verse number 9 and 10, the Bible says, Paul writes, he's speaking to Timothy, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, and Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. I want us to look at Demas this morning. Notice again verse 10. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. I want to talk this morning to you on the basics of backsliding. The basics of backsliding. Thank you. Please be seated. Paul wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus to two preachers, two pastors, Timothy and Titus. They're known as the pastoral epistles. And many would think, well, these don't really apply to me. They apply to pastors. But God put them here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we can all benefit from this. And Paul wrote these three letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, so that every church member could be helped along with the pastor. And what Paul was speaking about, emphasizing in these three, as well as even the book Philemon, though it's not about a pastor there, he's writing so that we would know how to be faithful. Faithful. Paul would want Christians in churches today to also hear and heed the same message as he wrote 2,000 years ago, be faithful. Paul used the Greek word where we get faith, faithful from, pistos. It's found 17 times in these writings. It's sometimes translated a different English word, but 17 times that theme runs throughout these three letters. Be faithful, he's telling us. Be faithful to the word of God. Be faithful to the task of God. Be faithful to the people of God. God, he tells us, is faithful. Therefore, we too can be faithful. If you've ever been to Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, you perhaps would have seen the famous Old Faithful. Anyone ever seen it in person, Old Faithful? I've seen it. And uh, I was just as thrilled looking at it in person as I had been reading about it. It's a geyser that shoots up thousands of gallons of boiling hot water about every hour or so. And it's called Old Faithful. Anyone want, want to guess as to why it's called Old Faithful? It's predictable. You can count on it going off at regular intervals because that's what it's been doing for hundreds of years. It's reliable. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2 tells us while you may never be much, everybody can be faithful. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Faithfulness is an important character quality all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, we know of Noah. Noah who was faithful in completing the ark despite public ridicule. Abraham, he demonstrated faithfulness in offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord. Moses was faithful as he led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness to the entrance of the promised land. 
David, a faithful king who shepherded God's people. Ruth, she faithfully stayed with her mother-in-law, Naomi, after her husband had died. Esther, Esther was faithful to her people. And she risked her life by entering into the presence of King Xerxes of Persia without being summoned. And she did so begging for their deliverance. And on and on we can go throughout the Bible and see faithfulness being demonstrated. It's especially emphasized, as I've mentioned, in this set of books, First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon as well. In fact, faithful is the big idea that, that weaves all throughout. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, these are all trusted colleagues of Paul. Men that he mentored in the faith. Men that he charged to carry on the work of God. Timothy, he wasn't too happy in his church at Ephesus. Titus, he was in a difficult situation on the island of Crete. I'm reminded of these and I'll go to these men often when I find circumstances that are not as appealing. When I find difficulties maybe overwhelming, I'm reminded that, that God's men have been given the task and summons to be faithful regardless of the surroundings, regardless of the temperature, regardless because God is faithful. Paul emphasizes at least two purposes in these writings of the pastoral epistles. Number one, he writes to help us understand the ministry of the local church. And number two, he was writing to encourage people to stick to it. Don't quit. I've seen many come and go. Maybe not as many as Dr. Childs. Maybe not as many as even Brother Autry. But I've seen many come and go. I can think of many who were at one time excited about serving God. They never missed a service. You could count on them being in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And if the church assembled together some other night, they would be there. They were some of the best workers in the church. But today, they're nowhere to be found. At least not in the place where they should be found. They're out of church. They're away from the Lord. J.C. Ryle said, It is a miserable thing to be a backslider. Of all the unhappy things that can befall a man, I suppose backsliding is the worst. A stranded ship, a broken winged eagle, a garden overrun with weeds, a harp without strings, a church in ruins, all these are sad sights. But a backslider is a sadder sight still. Perhaps the most miserable person in the world is a backslidden Christian. Because he's a Christian, he knows too much. Backslidden. It's sad to see those who were once living for Jesus, but now cooled off from their affection and their consecration to him. They've substituted knowing about him instead of experiencing him. They've substituted being familiar with Jesus instead of putting their faith regularly, daily in Jesus. The term backsliding is mentioned about 17 times in the Bible. Mainly you'll find it in Jeremiah and Hosea. It describes a condition, a condition in which God's people refuse to go forward. 
See, a lot of times people justify their condition and they settle with it saying, I'm not backsliding, I'm not going anywhere. But backsliding is not sliding backwards, it's a refusal to go forward. In fact, Hosea is the one who used in Hosea chapter 4 the description, the picture of God's people in their backslidden state as a backsliding heifer. Backsliding heifer is just locking down and you can pull on it, you can push it, you can prod it and it just don't want to go. That is backsliding. You don't have to be out in the parking lot sitting in the car during the service. You can be sitting right here, but you're refusing to go forward with God. The essence of backsliding is being closer to God at some other point than right now and refusing to do something about it. Backsliding is not just a a concept in the Old Testament. It's a concept in the New. Peter backslid. Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration saw what only a few people saw. He heard what only a few people heard. He experienced God in a way we could only imagine. God was manifested right before him. Peter said, if everybody denies you, I'm not going to deny you. Peter was sincere and we're going through this in our refresher after the Sunday night services. But Peter backslid. The church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, God deals with them because they left their first love. They didn't lose their first love. They did what we all do with it. They left it. They left it. But Demas is another one. Demas is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14. He says, Luke the beloved physician and Demas greet you. He's also found in Philemon chapter 1. There's only one chapter, verse 24. And here the apostle Paul speaks of Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. And then he's mentioned here in our text, 2 Timothy 4 and verse number 10, for Demas hath forsaken me because he loved this present world, having loved this present world. You know, Demas's name means popular. Perhaps he's the one who made friends quickly. Maybe he had such a, a personality that people were just drawn to him. He was a magnet. Maybe he was well known and real, well respected by others, especially those in the church. Maybe that's why he was popular. Maybe he was popular because he had a stellar testimony for the Lord. Regardless of whatever his popularity was at the point in which Paul mentions him in Colossians 4 and in Philemon chapter number 1, what we do know is that Demas for the last 2,000 years has been popular for all the wrong reasons. It's because he was a backslider. Anytime his name is mentioned, we're always thinking of him in terms, if you know Demas, as a backslider. I think you would agree that's not something you want on your tombstone. He's in Philemon verse 24, one of my fellow laborers. He's mentioned with Luke by Paul in Colossians 4 and verse 14, but he's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10 as having forsaken Paul being in love with this present world. 
I want us to take a closer look at Demas so we can get better acquainted with him. But in doing so, I want us to see some of the very basics of backsliding that might could help us. Number one, I want you to see of Demas his story of devotion. You see Demas's life in these three snapshots of Demas. You find a story of devotion. In verse number 24, again, of Philemon, one of those three places, the Apostle Paul is speaking highly of him. Paul names him along with others and speaks of them as my fellow laborers. That's a, a grand title to have. The word fellow laborers comes with two words, meaning together with and work. When these two words come together, he's speaking of co-worker with Paul. It's the Apostle Paul who's calling Demas my fellow laborer. He's my companion in the ministry. What a compliment this was for Demas considering the spiritual stature of Paul. For Paul to speak of Demas as a fellow laborer, I think reveals to us a couple of things that are important for us to know. One, Paul's assessing Demas' walk with the Lord. When you follow Paul on his missionary journeys, you, you will not miss, if you're paying attention, to a particular detail, and that is, Paul didn't take people with him just because they wanted to go with him. Paul took people with him who were serious about serving God. Paul never put out an advertisement for volunteers in Jerusalem. He didn't put a, a list out on, uh, an announcement out on Craigslist. He didn't put something on Facebook or social media saying, I'm looking for someone who will join me in the ministry. No, he only took those whom he knew had demonstrated love and devotion to Jesus. John Mark is an excellent example of Paul's strictness about who he allowed to travel with him. Because John Mark had on one occasion turned back. And Paul refused to have him go on the next missionary team with him. And Paul was so adamant about not taking John Mark later on that it caused trouble between he and Silas, his dear friend and companion. But Paul was serious about only taking people who were serious about serving the Lord. We've gotten into this, well, we need as many as we can. No, we need God. We need God. Little is much when God is in it. And so Paul's not looking for a greyhound bus full of people. He's looking for someone who is serious because God only attends to those who are hungry and thirsty and seeking after him. Paul only had those totally sold out to the Lord on his staff. He was serious about God's work and he would have no one who he felt was not completely sold out to the Lord. There are only two types of people within the church. Those who are sold out and those who need to be. For Demas to be a co-worker with Paul reveals Paul's assessment of the kind of Christian that he once was. In Paul's eyes, he was someone who loved the Lord with all of his heart. But not only does this reveal Paul's assessment of his being useful in his walk with the Lord, but it also tells us Paul's appreciation of his work for the Lord. Demas had been one who worked with Paul in the ministry. Maybe he was Paul's right hand man at one time preaching the gospel. They preached together. They witnessed together. They planted churches together. Demas had been part of what God was doing.
They work together, hand in hand, serving God. You can sense the appreciation Paul had for Demas as a co-worker. God used Paul as much as any man who ever lived, yet the work Paul did was dependent upon the help that he received from others. That's always the case. No pastor builds a church. Jesus builds the church. And the Bible teaches that he calls members, people. He doesn't call those who are equipped. No, he equips those that he calls. There must be members to help. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9, we're laborers together with God. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them two by two. Not just so they would have somebody to talk to, because he recognized the need, the importance of having co-laborers for the work. It's always been God's plan for God's people to work together. Demas was a fellow laborer. His devotion is seen both in his walk and his work. Great example he was for each of us. What kind of testimony do you have? Are you devoted to the Lord and to his work? It was said that Wendell Wilkie asked President Franklin D. Roosevelt when he visited the president in his office in the White House, Mr. President, why do you keep that frail, sickly man, Harry Hopkins, at your elbow? Roosevelt responded, Mr. Wilkie, through that door flows daily an incessant stream of men and women who almost invariably want something from me. Harry Hopkins wants only to serve me. That's why he's so near me. When we first meet Demas, he was a devoted follower of Jesus. He was devoted to the cause of Christ in such a way that Paul saw in his life and appreciated it. However, sadly, something changed in Demas. He made Paul glad, but before it was over, he made Paul sad. Notice with me, not only do we see a story of devotion when you look at Demas, but number two, you see the story of desertion. It's a story of desertion. Paul says, Demas hath forsaken me. I think it's incredible and thrilling Paul's description of Demas in Philemon, verse 24, of his devotion as a co-laborer. But I think it's very tragic, his declaration in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10. He's forsaken me. The word forsaken literally speaks of abandonment, of desertion. It was a word used to speak of someone abandoning their post. What a turnaround. The devoted one is now the deserted one. When Paul says, Demas hath forsaken me, he's telling us two basic things. When he forsook and abandoned this, this work, this nature of ministry, two things. Number one, he left the work of God. He left the work of God. And Paul says he's forsaken me. But don't ever confuse the fact that you can't forsake a person without understanding if you're abandoning your post, you're forsaking God's work. 
Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, just before they took their last breath and they were placed into the first cemetery in the back of the church there, he says, you've not lied to me, though they had lied to Peter. You've not lied to me, but you lied to the Holy Ghost. What he's saying is, you can lie to man and think it's no big deal, but what you're doing is you're ultimately forsaking the work of God. When he forsook and abandoned Paul, he was not just leaving the man of God, but even worse, he's leaving the work of God. Article 85 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice defines desertion as being absent from the unit without authority. And many people have abandoned their post of duty without God's authority. Oh, they can say all they want to. God led me. But Paul's saying of Demas... No, he's forsaken. He has fors- he's abandoned. He's gone AWOL. He deserted Paul, not just Paul, but the Lord and his work. In plain old everyday language, Demas was a spiritual deserter leaving his God-appointed post. He preached with Paul. He won souls to Christ. He helped in the planning of churches. He had served God in the past with a great devotion, but now he's a spiritual disaster. Desertion was rampant during the Civil War. I've read where one out of every seven soldiers were known as deserters. Hiram F. Eastman is one such example. He's a member of the Company A of the 4th Virginia Cavalry. The reason why I mention him is because in looking at him, there's only one line about him in the entire regimental uh, series. It says this, quote, Hiram F. Eastman, Company A. Enlisted, April 23rd, 1861, comma, deserter, end of quote. Dr. Bill Grady once told a story of a preacher who developed a habit of going down to a train station and sitting for hours watching trains go by. The church had become concerned for him, so they sent one of the deacons down to talk to him. The conversation went something like this. The deacon said, preacher, how's it going? Preacher said, oh, just fine, I suppose. Deacon said, "Um, are you okay? Anything wrong? Preacher said, no, nothing's wrong. Deacon said, well, it's just that you've been coming down here a lot and just sitting. We thought maybe something's wrong. We wanted to check. Sure, nothing's wrong? Preacher said, no, nothing's wrong. Deacon said, but what are you doing sitting here? Don't you realize it's a little strange You're just sitting here hours after hours watching trains go by? Preacher said, because brother, sometimes it does my heart good to see something move that I don't have to push. Let me remind you, if you're having to be pushed often, it's because you're lingering. When you have to be pushed often to obey God, you're backslidden. Listen, it's one thing to start well, but even more important it is that we finish well. Demas did start well. But the final and defining statement of his life is that he's a deserter. Could there be anything worse said of us? Furthermore, we see that demons not only left the work of God, but he also, when we abandon, forsake, and desert, we limit the work of God. 
Paul said to Timothy in verse number 9, he says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. He's saying, Timothy, can you get here as fast as you can? Paul was saying that, Timothy, I really need you. Do your absolute best to join me. And the reason why, he says in verse 10, is because Demas hath left the work and he's limited the work. Remember where Paul was? Remember what Paul's going through in 2 Timothy? Anybody remember? Yeah, he's in jail. He finds himself there quite a bit. But what, what happens at the conclusion of 2 Timothy? He doesn't write another book. He's executed. He's waiting for the axe to come down across his neck. And Paul, in the waning hours, he's still just as consecrated. He's still just as serious about the things of God. He's still putting a plea out there, trying to move people around. Timothy, can you get here? And he's concerned because someone hasn't just abandoned him. There's a whole other message I'd like to preach on how Timothy dealt with the, with the hurt and with the anger just out of the people who have abandoned and forsaken him. But that's not his focus. His focus is because of the work of God. He's abandoned. He's deserted. He's left us in straits. He's left us helpless. He's left the, the church in a lurch. He's let us down. Kenneth Wee says this tells us that Demas had only left Paul so far as fellowship and companionship was concerned, but he had left him in the lurch also so far as the work of the gospel was concerned. This word forsaken, Jesus used that word. On the cross in Matthew 27, 46, why hast thou forsaken me? God turned his back on Jesus on the cross. Why? Because God didn't love his son? No, because of your sin and mine upon Jesus on the cross. God being a holy God cannot look at sin. God being a holy God cannot let us get away with sin. God being a holy God cannot tolerate sin. And he turned his back on Jesus and the entire world went dark because God not only could not look at sin, his son engulfed in your sin and mine, but he didn't want the world to look at him either. And Jesus hung in total darkness, completely abandoned, so that you never have to go through that experience. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 5, God promises, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And yet Paul says, Demas, he's forsaken me. It was a cruel blow to Paul right to the very last. Now, one whom he trusted let him down. It's not just the heart of Paul that was hurting. It was the work of God that was hurting. When Christians quit working for God, the work of God does suffer. What do you do when people quit? Well, we just keep going. That's all we can do. We just fill in and file in. And we just keep following Jesus. But rest assured, and what God called you to do and what God had for you to do. No one else can quite do it the same way. Oh, we're not going to sit around and forsake the work with you. We're going to follow the one who promised never to forsake us. But don't think that the work is not important. 
Someone said, this is my church. It is composed of people just like me. It will be friendly if I am. It will do a great work if I work. It will further the ministry of missions if I am generous. It will bring others into its fellowship if I bring them. Its seats will be filled if I fill them. It will be a church of loyalty and love, of faith and service if I, who make it what it is, am filled with these. Therefore, with God's help, I dedicate myself to the task of being all these things I want my church to be. Demas was a devoted servant who became a deserted servant. The question is why? Why did he forsake Paul and the work of God? I want you to see number three. Demas is a story of distraction. It's a story of distraction. Verse number 10. The Bible says, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. There's always a reason why people get out of God's work. Paul explained why Demas forsook him. He said that he fell in love with this present world. Demas was distracted from the great work that he was in by the world that he was immersed in. Jesus taught his disciples, you're in the world, but you don't have to be of the world. It's not the problem with the boat being in the water. It's when the water gets into the boat that it's a problem. The Christian in the world is not the problem, but when the world starts getting into the Christian, that's a problem. Demas, he got distracted. He had a fascination with earthly things. In Demas' case, he loved the enemy. Because the world, the world system is not a friend of God. When Paul spoke of the world, he was not talking about the planet on which we live. Nor is he talking about the people that God so loved when he loved the world. But rather the world speaks of the world system. The world around us as the world system thinks and feels and acts and lives. The Holman Bible Dictionary describes the world as all that is hostile, rebellious, and opposed to God. He's talking about an organized system headed by Satan that draws us away from God's love and God's will. See, you love the world when it owns your affections. You love the world when you're governed by the things of the world so that your choices exclude God. The world is a great enemy of the Christian. It's a system of things that is in opposition to God. The world lives after the flesh and lives to fulfill the desires of the flesh. The world lives a kind of life that is the opposite of what God wants his people to live. We're going to look at Lot another day, but one of the reasons Lot wound up in Sodom and Gomorrah is because he was longing for something that was appealing to his senses, that was familiar to him in the world. And what he looked at, he longed for and ended up living in. 
And therefore, the world has that kind of draw. The charms of the world around Demas pulled the heart of Demas away from the things of God. He became fascinated with the things of the world around him rather than fascinated with the things above. That's why John says in 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, in other words, he's saying you can't love God and love the world at the same time. Demas fell out of love with God and fell in love with the world and therefore he found it to be true. He could not love God and love the world at the same time. The world has a grip on many who name the name of Jesus. They sit in our churches every week. But the great love of their life is not the Lord Jesus, but it's the world and the things of the world. Christians are in the world, but they're not to be a part of the world. There is to be no love affair with the world around us. James chapter 4 says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You are in love with the enemy of God when you love the things of the world. And he says, you are two-timing it on God. You're cheating on God. And some parents, they don't mind their kids cheating on God and being in love with the things of this world by cultivating a life for them that puts them on the broad path that leads to destruction. Listen, Paul was on the narrow road. Jesus was on the narrow road. And he says, few there be that find it. Why? Because when you're looking to enjoy the things of the world, you're not going to find God. When you're looking to dive into the things of the world, you're not going to find God. The world and God, they're going to collide. The world and the system and the devil and God and the church, they're going to collide. And when you're looking to enjoy the things of the world, the things of the people who are going to hell, who need God, you can't love Jesus at the same time. The Lord has delivered us from the present evil world. Galatians 1 and verse 4. And yet we're spotted by the world. James 1 and verse 27. What happens then? We start being conformed to the world. Romans 12 and verse 2. What happens? You become condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 32. God's condemning the world. God will judge the world. God's people are going to be condemned with it. You don't lose your salvation. You'll be saved, Jude says, but so as by fire. Not only do we see he had a fascination with earthly things, but Demas, Demas' problem of being distracted was he forgot eternal things. He forgot what was most important. The tragedy of his fascination with the world is that he forgot the eternal things. Demas was in love, but in love with the wrong things. Instead of loving that which was spiritual, he loved that which was sensual. Instead of loving that which is eternal, he loved that which was earthly. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, else he will despise the one and cleave to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Psalm 97, 10, ye that love the Lord hate evil. As Christians, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. Live 
daily in unbroken fellowship and communion continually grow in our love for Him. Remember, God develops His children. God equips His children. God transforms His people. God grows His people. But He doesn't do it in a day. He does it daily. 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 Kenneth Wiest says that the spirit of the age got a hold of Demas. What a warning example to those of us who are teachers and preachers of the word. How careful we should be to obey the exhortation of Paul when Paul says, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Colossians 3 and verse 2. Let me say this in closing. Every one of us can start well. Every one of us can run well. But the question is, will you end well? Demas began well, faithful service, very zealous. But faithful in service is no guarantee. Bible college diploma, title of service, that's no guarantee that I will finish well. Our lives must be lived faithfully each day, each day of the week, each day of the month, each day of the year. Here is a man who served Christ well. He belonged to an intimate circle of workers with the Apostle Paul, yet he was remembered as one who abandoned the privilege of being a co-worker with Paul and the Holy Spirit. Demas serves as a warning to each of us that we cannot rest on our past or make assumptions about the future as though it'll be automatic. We must maintain a steady diligence. Proverbs 4.23, keep or protect your heart with all diligence. Why? Because out of it are the issues of life. Billy Sunday Billy Sunday was an evangelist in the early 1900s. He was converted as a baseball player, professional baseball player. He joined a church and a Christian man put his arm on the young man's shoulder and said, William, there are three simple rules I can give to you. And if you will hold to them, you will never write backslider over your name. He said, number one, take 15 minutes each day to listen to God talking to you. By the way, I ask my kids, how many ears do you have? How many mouths do you have? Keep them in balance. Jesus said, he that hath ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. Hear what God is saying to you. Number two, take 15 minutes each day to talk to God. Number three, take 15 minutes each day to talk to others about God. Amen. Billy Sunday was deeply determined to make these rules for his life. From that day on throughout his life, he made it a rule to spend the first moments of his day alone with God and His Word. Before he read a letter, before he looked at the newspaper. For some of you younger people, that's what we had before we had smartphones. Before he looked at any of those things, he first went to the Bible so that the first impression that he got that day was directly from God Almighty. We have what is known as the Christ Walk Journal that's helped many of us. 
It is allowing us that same systematic way and discipline to help us meet with God each day, experiencing God. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, a young pastor here, he writes the book of Titus to another young pastor. And what is it that Paul is saying to these two men? Be faithful. Oh, Timothy, be faithful. Demas hath forsaken me. Be faithful. The late president of Wheaton College. You may remember the name Elizabeth Elliot. She went to Wheaton College. Jim Elliott went to Wheaton College. Many other older people, uh, uh, saints in the older years when Wheaton College was halfway decent. But the late president, Dr. V. Raymond Edmond, used to remind Christians, it's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. He was right. And if you commit to following the word of God's counsel, you'll discover it's always too soon to quit. And God gives staying power to those who will be steadfast and unmovable. If you and I are faithful to the task God has given to us, His work will prosper. His name will be glorified. Could you think of anything greater than making God happy? Be faithful to the one who will always be faithful. Let's stand together, please.